Good morning. Excited to kick off the God Is series. I'll say this is a little awkward because I'm going to pick on Heidi, and she's actually in this service. So um, hopefully many of you know Heidi Sweet. She's our children's ministry director. One thing you might not know is that Heidi loves to give thoughtful gifts, that whenever it's somebody's birthday in the office, she's the one who remembers, and she picks up a dessert to fatten us up. So Heidi loves to do that. Well, last recently, when it was her birthday, and I won't tell you which one, but when it was her birthday, I wanted to return the favor. And so I asked her daughter, Haley, to figure out what dessert would she really like? What's a treat she wants? And so Haley texts me and says, I found a way to subtly ask the question, and her dessert is something hot and cold. Yeah, I was a little bewildered too. I asked for a dessert, not for a riddle. I wasn't sure what was happening. But she said, I like something hot and something cold. Now, for me, it would have been an easy answer. Could have said peanut butter M&Ms, cheesecake, or a pie, anything, but hot and cold. So as we talked about that, I started to figure out, okay, that means hot fudge on ice cream or bananas foster. But then I realized the problem is, how do you gift that to someone without it melting? Another problem. Thankfully, my life got a little bit easier. I learned she liked a raspberry cake from Taylor's, and so I just bought that gave that to her, and everything was easy. Well, later on, as we talked about her high-maintenance, hot-and-cold desserts, I started to realize, okay, here are examples of what that looks like. It started to make sense because I know there are times where things that seem like they wouldn't go together, they actually do fit. So hot chocolate fudge on cold vanilla ice cream. Or a sugary drink like Dr. Pepper that goes with salty pizza or a cheeseburger or orange juice in the morning with your bacon. You love the two together. Now, some things really don't fit, and I'll be honest. So my wife, and this is, uh, again, against her, but she actually puts cold ketchup on hot popcorn. Yeah, you can say it. That's a little gross. So I'm sorry I even put that image in front of your mind before lunch, but wife, I still love you. But there are some things that seem like they wouldn't go together, but they actually do. Like one of the things I love in summer is you take cold fruit and put it on the hot grill. And it's that cold center of the pineapple that works with the hot exterior. It's the contrast of the two that actually makes them better together than on their own. And the same is even true in what we look for and respect in people. You know, we respect strong, convictional, confident people. And yet we really respect when they're also humble, gentle, and kind. You know, the person who is only strong, or the person who is only gentle, they feel terribly imbalanced. And so what we'll see this morning is that one reason, one of many, why God is worthy of our worship is because he actually unifies and embodies things that seems like they would never go together. So God is transcendent, meaning that God is beyond us, and above us, and yet God is also imminent and that he draws near to us. It's one thing to say that God is holy and perfect and righteous, and it's another thing to say, even though he is those things, he also wants to come close to us, to have a relationship with us, and to be present in the lives of his people. So this morning, as we're in Isaiah 40 and 41, and if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go there. What we'll see is that Isaiah shows us God's glory so that as we put our faith in him, we can actually fight our fear. 
and that we can have hope in hardships. That if God was only transcendent, yes, we would worship him, but we would never draw close and follow him. And if God is only imminent, like so many people's version of God, where he's kind of a buddy, yeah, he might be a friend, but you would not follow him, worship him, or give your life to him. But God is both. He is transcendent, and he is imminent. Now, since we're jumping into the middle of Isaiah, I'm guessing you're less familiar with this book, so let me give you two pieces of context. First, chapter 40 begins a new division of the book where God is actually addressing his people in exile. And they're in exile because of their sin, their unrepentant sin. At this moment in the book, Israel is devastated and broken. They're subject to Babylon. They've lost their land, their king, and their temple. All the trauma of war they've experienced. This is why in chapters 40 and 41, as you'll see, there's so much language about other nations and their fear of other nations. And then second, although these chapters then are speaking to a people in the middle of great devastation, here in chapter 40 begins the message of hope. You can even see in verse nine that it talks about a speaker getting high up into a mountain so he can proclaim good news to all the people. It's a word of comfort. And in these two chapters, chapters 40 and 41, they're trying to answer at least two questions. Is God able to deliver his people? And does God even desire to deliver his people anymore? Well, first, we'll consider his transcendence by noticing a few things, specifically from Isaiah 40. And the transcendence of God just refers to how God is very different from all other things, that he is above us and beyond us and bigger than us in infinite proportions, that he is set apart from us and how different he is as a God who is holy, who is perfect, who is eternal, who is self-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, a being who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has all the attributes of the divine being perfectly, all the times, to their complete extent, and in unison and harmony together. So to highlight the transcendence of God, I wanna just point out two things emphasized in chapter 40. The first is that God is creator of all things. And the second is that God is also ruler of all nations. And the two of these together both illustrate God's power and his might, his wisdom and his knowledge, his sovereignty and his rule, his eternality, his infinity, and his plans and purposes. So in the next five minutes, I will definitely exhaust God's transcendence. So pay attention. That obviously won't happen. But start with me in chapter 40, verses 12, and we'll just skim the surface of looking at who God is. Follow along with me as I read. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Who did God, who did God consult, and who made him understand who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Now, these rhetorical questions, they're made to just give us perspective, almost even put us in our place so we see who we are 
and we see who God is. And Isaiah, he points to things in creation here that absolutely astound us, things that other cultures have associated with gods or with worship. And yet Isaiah goes there to remind us that he, the true God, these things display his wisdom, his power, his creativity, and his love of beauty. Again, because we have to focus our time, I'll just look at the three images here in verse 12. And it starts by talking about the oceans, that the largest oceans that just originated in God's mind, and they were formed with his hands, and he did that without breaking a sweat. Though they're deep and vast, in verse 12 it says that God can actually put them in the hollow or the palm of his hand. Now you've probably gone to the ocean, sat on the beach, and just looked into that beautiful, never-ending horizon. And that's a healthy thing. It's a reminder of how small we are, but also how marvelous and majestic the earth is. So here's a picture. I mean, that's stunning. That's beautiful. I know you thought that was Geist, but it's actually not. It's an ocean somewhere, but it's a beautiful picture of God on display. Now consider a few stats about the oceans. Here's your science class. We'll be ready. Water covers 70% of the Earth's surface, and the oceans contain 320 million cubic miles of water. That more than half of the ocean is greater than two miles deep. Listen to this. That the deepest point of the ocean we know about, it's one mile deeper than Mount Everest is tall. That's pretty deep. 94% of all life on Earth is in the ocean. Here's a fun fact. If you've ever taken a small gulp of water in the ocean, even just a millimeter of water, then you've swallowed one million bacteria. Good to know. Yeah, I won't even mention what's in the neighborhood pool or in your pool if you've ever swallowed that. It's even grosser than the ketchup and popcorn. Well, the point here is that the oceans are vast, that they're mysterious, that they're glorious, but more so that they reveal an even more glorious God who not only creates it, but says, these are so small, I can hold them in the hollow of my hand. Verse 12 continues, and it talks about him marking off the skies with a span, and the span was just the length of a finger. Consider this as well, that a solar system is the star and all the space junk kind of orbiting around it. For us, obviously, the sun is the center of our solar system, And the eight planets, not the nine planets, but the eight planets and all the other things orbiting around us, that's our solar system. To give you some perspective, Earth is 2.7 billion miles from Neptune. And our solar system, it's sort of tucked away in just one of four arms of the Milky Way galaxy. And here's a space image. This isn't the Milky Way galaxy. This is a reminder that We don't actually have any real images of the Milky Way galaxy because we've never sent any telescopes or anything beyond that. So this is the Whirlpool galaxy. I thought it was pretty, so I included it. There's two galaxies together. But the Milky Way is actually just a medium-sized galaxy holding between 200 and 400 billion stars. And it's part of the Virgo supercluster, which includes an estimated 500 different galaxies. One more little tidbit, that in space there are these massive stars called nebula. And the Rosette Nebula is estimated to be more than 10,000 of our suns. And a section of the Eagle Nebula is several thousand times larger than our entire solar system, to give perspective. 
Well, in verse 26, God says, lift up your eyes, see these amazing things, and who the one is who created them, that they display my might, my power, how big I am as God. John Piper writes, it seems to me that creation praises God by simply being what it was created to be in all its incredible variety. And since most of the creation is beyond the awareness of mankind, in the reaches of space and in the heights of mountains and at the bottom of the sea, it wasn't created merely to serve purposes that have to do with us. It was created for the glory and enjoyment of God. Well, the last thing I'll mention is that verse 12, it talks about God measuring and weighing the mountains on scales. And I remember two summers ago, my wife Melissa and I, we went to Seattle and to see Mount Rainier. Now, it's not the tallest mountain in the world, but there's a 9,000-foot elevation gain from bottom to top. One of the unique things about it is it stands there all by itself, and because of that, it just towers and looms above everything. You can't help but stare at Mount Rainier. And one of the days, we were in Port Townsend, which is north of Seattle. We were 130 miles away, and we could still see the mountain. On a clear day, you can actually see Mount Rainier from 180 miles. That's the distance from Indy to Chicago. So just imagine being in downtown Indianapolis. You're looking out, and you see something in Chicago. I mean, that's incredible. That's stunning. And the point here is that that is majestic. That is huge. That is large. And yet God says, I can weigh the mountains. I can pick them up, and they go in my scales. Notice the language in verse 12 of a craftsman. It says that God actually measures things, that he marks them off, and that he weighs them. The point for us to see is that they are his handiwork, and that he makes big and beautiful things to display how big and beautiful and powerful he is as God. And this should cause us to marvel before him in awe. Well, I'm going to skip over the second aspect of God's transcendence, but I at least wanted to mention it. The second thing that Isaiah picks up is that God is not only over all creation, but he rules all nations. That the nations, their kings and governments, they might seem powerful and scary, but God reminds them that he's not only bigger and more powerful, but he's in absolute control. That he rules all nations. And so the reason Isaiah draws from God's might and creation and God's rule over the nations is to remind us that God is in control, that he is powerful, that he is full of wisdom and knowledge, and that he is transcendent. So why did Isaiah go here with the people in exile? Why go to creation? Or what do we do with passages like this about God's transcendence? Well, what Isaiah and the Bible, and this sermon series is calling us to do is to grow in the knowledge of God so we worship him, so we follow him, so we image him to others, and so we respond to what we see. Look again at the last phrase of verse nine. This short and sweet phrase simply says, it sets up the whole, this chapter and the next chapter by saying, behold your God. It's repeated twice in the next verse, It's again in verse 15, and then we see it twice in chapter 41. And the message and the application then is first and foremost, look at who God is. 
Be stunned by him, worship him, and know him. And not only does creation reveal this amazing God, but the scripture, the Bible, it tells us things about him in clear and compelling ways. And so the very first thing we need to do when we open our Bibles, when we look at scripture, is say, what is God telling us about himself here? And then how do we rejoice in that, and how do we respond And so my application, my encouragement is that we must press into beholding God, of knowing him and worshiping him, that we need to see him in all his glory so it changes our perspective of our troubles, what's going on in my strength. And so my encouragement is to pray with me through this series and to ask God to help us be amazed by who he is. Ask God to help him to show you who he is and to help you love him even more. Well, having now considered the transcendence of God, let's take a little bit of time to look at his eminence. So whereas transcendence refers to the fact that God is independent of us, that he is holy, that he is perfect, that he is set apart, eminence refers to his nearness, his presence, and his desire to be in relationship with us. It includes characteristics of God, such as his gentleness, his love, his patience, his grace, his mercy, and his kindness. Now we see God's eminence in names where he's called a shepherd, a father, a refuge, an advocate, and especially in the language of Emmanuel, God with us. So as we look at Isaiah 41 in verses 8 to 20, we'll notice how the same God who is transcendent, the God who is creator of all things, ruler of all nations, is also a friend of sinners, and he's a helper to the helpless. So if chapter 40, if chapter 40 was saying, behold our God, chapter 41 is telling us, trust in our God. So I want to quickly walk through this passage, and then we'll circle back to chapter 41, verse 10 at the end. So to start, actually go to chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, because this kind of provides a summary of the following chapters. So I'll read this, but this is Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. And listen for the transcendence and the imminence of God. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So in verse 10, we have this picture of a transcendent God. We're told to behold him, that he comes as a king and a victor and a ruler with all his power and his might and his rewards. We're told that his strong right arm can crush any enemy and wins the victory. And yet, if you look immediately in verse 11, we see that the king is also a shepherd and that his strength against enemies, it's coupled with his care for us. He is God, but he is God for his own people and with his people. This shows up again in 40 verses 28 to 31. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And because of that, he gives power to the faint 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The picture here is of an untiring, everlasting God who comes to refresh and renew his people. And this becomes even more clear now as we move into chapter 41. So go to 41.8 and we'll look at the following verses. Now notice the language in verse eight. He calls them his chosen people and his servant. Now just to clarify, when God calls someone his servant, that's not a negative term, but a positive. It means someone he has chosen to carry out his specific mission. So Moses, Abraham, David, they're all called God's chosen servant. Even later on, Israel will call the Messiah the chosen servant. And so here what God is actually doing with this language is he's recalling his covenant commitment to them to say, I am still your God. You are still my people, that I do have plans for you and I will use you, that I will keep my promises and you will not be abandoned. Well, notice in 41.8 as it continues, it then calls them his friends. And I can't think of anything that summarizes God's eminence more than the fact that he calls us friends. That this holy God, this God who created and rules all things, this transcendent God, that he actually lowers himself to become our friend. Elsewhere in the Psalms, it talks about God bending to hear our prayers. The, the Hebrew language, it literally means here, my beloved. He's saying, it's not that I'm stuck in a relationship with you. It's not that you sort of got into the people of God and now I have to be committed to you. I love you. I see you as a friend. It's not like God is Tyrone Liu, the coach of the Cleveland Cavs, and he's sort of been stuck with this team of scrubs and he wishes he had different people and he's just trying to make things work. I think sometimes we think God thinks that about us. Okay, I have Dustin. He believed in Jesus, so I'm stuck with him. But that's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that God sees us and he actually relates to us as his friend, as his family, as the one he loves. However, I have to say here that it doesn't matter if God is powerful and God is a friend of sinners if we are still his enemy. And this is why understanding the gospel is so important. You see, this chapter, it's within a larger story of God redeeming a people to himself, of him coming after them and saving them because they couldn't do it on their own. In fact, the first 39 chapters were all about Israel's sinfulness, their unrepentant heart, and the ways they turned against God. And yet God had warned them again and again of judgment, and now here they are in Isaiah chapter 40 under that judgment. But in 41.14, it also tells us that God himself will be their redeemer. And so part of the fear going on here in Isaiah 40 and 41 for Israel is they're wondering as if their sin is the final word. They're wondering, have they been disregarded by God forever? Should they have hope in God? Is all this good news true? Or has their sin sort of sealed their fate? Can a transcendent, holy, perfect God actually be in relationship with sinners? Well, I'm sure you and I ask similar questions. We ask, can God forgive me and love me? 
Do I have hope? Have I blown it? Have I sinned one too many times? Well, the answer is actually yes and no. Yes, we are deserving, we are unworthy, and we are unfit. Yes, sin is a problem. Yes, God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice should cause him to distance himself from sinners and only relate to them as judge. But no, that is not the final word, and that doesn't have to be the case because God comes as a redeemer to save his people. And Jesus himself, he is the perfect embodiment of this as the eternal son of God in the incarnation takes on humanity, takes on flesh, and becomes one of us. That it's the clear example of eminence because God dwells with us through Jesus to actually save us. And so when Jesus gives his life on the cross, he does that so that we can find forgiveness, so that when we stop trusting in ourselves, when we actually trust in Jesus alone for salvation, that he restores us to God, that he takes enemies and he makes us friends, that God redeems us to himself so that we can then be called his beloved. And so we see God's eminence in how he would actually become a friend of sinners And we see that Jesus, ultimately, he's the only one that can make that possible. Well, God is not only a friend of sinners, but he's a helper to the helpless. So the text then moves in verses 9 to 20 to tell us specifically how God will be for us. In verse 9 of chapter 41, it says, Because God has called us to himself, we can know that he will not cast us off, that he will not desert us or leave us to ourselves, that he is faithful, and steadfast. In verse 10, we we were told that because of that, he will strengthen us and he will uphold us. And we'll come back to verse 10. Well, the text with verses 11 to 20, it now moves into three specific examples of how God will be for us, how he will give help to the helpless. First, in 11 to 13, we see that God says, when you face enemies, when you face opposition, I will fight your battles and give you the victory. That if God is on our side, then our enemies become the enemies of God. And that is a good place to be. Well, second, in verses 14 to 16, it then talks about how God will help us in personal weakness. So he fights our enemies, but he also helps us when we are weak. It said, God turns the weak and powerless worm into a powerful threshing sledge that eats through crops. Now, a threshing sledge was really just a hard piece of wood with teeth underneath it so that it could eat through crops. It was kind of like a pre-industrial combine machine. And so the point here is God is saying, it doesn't matter who you are, how weak you are, if you're like a worm, that when I'm faithfully at work, when I bring my power into the situation, I can help you clear any obstacles, that your personal weakness is no matter when my strength comes to bat. Well, third then in verses 17 to 20, God also promises to strengthen us in hard or adverse circumstances. He uses one example here of the poor and the needy. As I read these verses, verses 17 to 20, listen to all the I statements of God and then listen to the extent he will go to make sure we are provided for and carried through. It says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers to the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. 
I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So here we see that God's glory is at work for the good of his people when we face enemies, when we personally are weak, or in the middle of hard circumstances. But with the time we have left, I wanna go back to verse 10 and just talk about that for a little bit. Chapter 41, verse 10, it really summarizes most of chapter 41. And I think it's, to be honest, just one of those verses that we need to know and we need to memorize this verse and we need to believe that what it says is true. So this is Isaiah 41, 10, God talking to his people. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, be not dismayed, discouraged, be not anxious. Well, remember what I said at the beginning, that this passage was written to Israel in the middle of exile, that they've been kicked out of their land, that family members have been killed, that they're in a dangerous situation, and that their future is uncertain. From a human vantage point, they have a lot of things to worry about. And yet God is coming to them here with a word of hope and encouragement. And within that, he gives a command, fear not. Now, they obviously will have fears surface and come up. But what God says, just like we have, but God says, those are not to rule you. Don't give in to those, but fight against those fears. But how do we do that? How do they battle fear and how do we battle fear? Is it just thinking positively? Is it sort of ignoring what's wrong or closing our eyes and pretending it's not there? Is it trusting in myself that I can make this better? Is it being able to figure things out or if I can control things or if I can fix things, then I won't need to fear? Or is it just hoping that our luck will change? Well, I know you and I, we actually do turn to those things, but the reality is they never help us fight our fear. You know, if my wife or my daughter, if they get sick or something's wrong, I'll probably get on my phone, I'll start scanning, and I try to figure out what's going on, what could be wrong, what's the situation. But what if I can't find the answer? Or what if it, what if it really is something big or a problem? You know, in those moments, I can't outthink it, I can't suppress fear, I can't control fear. So what do we do to respond so I'm not ruled by it or overwhelmed by it? When Isaiah 41, we're told the only way we can obey this command not to fear is to fear God instead. Or in other words, the antidote to fear is trust, that I have to be more knowledgeable of and committed to who God is than the real or possible scenarios I'm facing, that I need a healthy fear of God, one of awe, one of belief that he really can do anything, one of trusting in him as my God, and that fear helps me battle the fear I feel in my gut. Listen as I read Isaiah 41.10. Here are the reasons God gives for why we should not fear. He says, fear not, for I am 
with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So through Isaiah, God reminds us who he is, and because he's our God, who he is for us, that his transcendence actually comes to bear on his eminence, that because he is our God, we can actually expect and we can bank on and we can rest in certain truth, that we cannot always control or fix what's going on in our lives, but we can rest on this, that God will be with me. We don't feel like we can endure or make it through another trial or what's in front of us, but we know this, that God will strengthen us. We have no idea how things will get better, if they'll get better, what a turnaround could look like, and yet God carries us through with this unshakable promise that I will help you, that I will uphold you, and that I will hold your hand, it says in verse 13. So as we talk about God in this series, we're saying, behold who God is, and then look at what he promises to you as his people, that every truth about God is meant to make us followers of him, worshipers, image bearers, and so we respond to what we see, that God is transcendent and worthy of all our worship, and yet God is also imminent and that he is our God, and he draws near to us, that he is actually with us and for us. He not only offers his power, but God offers his presence. I know for many of us, the tricky part when we talk about God is how do you get these big, sweeping truths actually sealed into your heart? You know, the truth is, when we talk about who God is, we need to personalize this, And we need to feel this. We need to take the things we meant to believe. Yeah, God is transcendent. God is imminent. And we need to let that cement into our hearts. And so I want to try to help with that this morning by just showing you a picture of my daughter and I. And the picture isn't meant to make you say, like, ah, Lily's so cute, even though that's true, or to make it seem like I'm the best dad, because that's not true. But I really just hope this is a visual image that, at least for me, it captures what God is telling us in chapters 40 and 41. So Melissa took this ordinary picture one day, actually at Thanksgiving, when Lily came up to me, she hugged me and put her arms around me. And as she did that, I obviously hugged her. You see, she's learning more about me as her dad, and as she learns about me, she's growing in trust. She's learning that my arms are there to pick her up, that I hold her hand and I walk her over the big steps or what looks scary to her, and that I will protect her from anything dangerous. I think when this picture was taken, there was actually a dog in the house. And for some reason, dogs always want to attack little babies. And so what I did was I held Lily, and I let her see and touch the dog, and then I held it off with my other hand. And so I'm hoping what Lily will connect in her mind now and over the next couple of years is that as she looks up to me, she will learn there are things I can do that she can't, that I know more than she does, that I can provide for her and protect her, that I'm stronger than her and that I can teach her. Here's the key. Because I'm her dad, I don't just possess these attributes or character qualities or these skills to be used for myself, but they all exist so I can serve her, care for her, and love her as my daughter. That anything I am, 
anything I have, everything I can do, everything I own, I would leverage that to care for and love on Lily. That there's nothing I would hold back. That there's nothing I won't leverage for the sake of my daughter. And this is what Isaiah is telling us. This is what is true about God for his people. This is what it means when transcendence and eminence come together. That God is many things. That God is almighty. He is wise. He is in control. He is steadfast. He is glorious. And he is kind. And yet what it means that he is our God is he is those things for us. That he is the God of his people. So every attribute, Every characteristic, every promise of God is then at work for us as his children. That everything he is as God, he is for his people. And we saw this in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, when it told us about the arms of God. It says that God picks us up in his strength. And like that picture, it says God actually wraps his arms around us in love. It says God's arm is so mighty, he can do anything, that he can crush any enemy, and he can sweep away any obstacle. But then it also says these same arms take us by the hand and walk us through the waters, that these strong arms of God are the same arms that pick up his people, and he holds them close to his heart, that he is God, but he is God for you. He is God for us. That everything he is, everything he has as God is leveraged to love and to care for his people, to see you through, to carry you through, and to help you know that God is caring for you. So my prayer today is that we would see that anew, that we would feel it, that we would believe it, and as we do so, we would trust in God all the more. That we would see not only who he is, but that means that he is those things for me and with me. So my encouragement today is whatever you're facing, whatever you're up against this week, to know that God's glory and his attributes are at work for your good. That whatever fear, whatever anxiety, whatever stress you're facing, God has told us here, the antidote is to trust in and turn to the transcendent God. Would you pray with me? God, we do love you. We're reminded in this passage how big and mighty and powerful you are, that you control all things, that you created all things, and yet at the same time, you are a friend of sinners and a helper to the helpless. So God, give us eyes to see that and help us to believe that this week. And even now, as we sing in response, Lord, we testify that this is true, that this is who you are as our God, and because of it, we love you. We pray this through Jesus who makes it possible. Amen.